0: This scripture comes from Psalms 19:97 to 106. Oh, what is it? 119? Oh, Psalms 119. Okay. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because i keep your precepts i have restrained my feet from every evil way that i may keep your words i have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me home sweet or how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth through your precepts i get understanding therefore i hate every false way your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments.
1: Amen. Now we'll have a divine message. Again, I want to welcome President uh, Bob Cundiff to our church. Thank you so much for coming.
2: Thank you so much, Elder Ron. Well, good morning. I'm the new guy. New guy down at the conference office. Nice to be with you this morning. Um, before I get into this morning's message, could I could I just take a moment and tell you folks a couple of little stories? They have nothing to do with my sermon. Mike's not on? Sounds on to me. Is that on? You okay? They have nothing to do with my sermon. Um... But when I heard the offering call this morning, and then I heard the children's story, there were there were a couple of things that arose in my heart, and I just wonder if these stories illustrate a spiritual point that someone needs to hear this morning. Because I, I learned this in my twenty three years in the pulpit that sometimes what you prepared was what were you going to preach, but sometimes in the pulpit you get in the pulpit and something comes out of your mouth that's not on your notes. And that becomes meet and do season for somebody out there. And I have just learned to pay attention to the Holy Spirit when he, when he gives that kind of a nudge. So um, I have a couple of stories to share that have absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. But maybe they do. Maybe they do. Because the sermon, did, did you, hear the, you hear the scripture reading? Wasn't that fantastic what he just read? That's incredible. And and maybe the sermon illustrates that a little bit. There's stewardship stories. The first one is my story. I'm a 12-year-old boy. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up in a very poor family, low socioeconomic stuff. We never owned our own home. We never bought a new car. We never went on a vacation. We never went out to eat. I didn't know how to go out and eat in a restaurant. I didn't know how people did that until I was like 15 years old. So I was that guy. I grew up that way. And one of my jobs around the house was to mow the grass and we had this old clunker of a mower that every time I mowed the grass, I had to work on it. <clears throat> and it was always dying and smoking and choking, and the thing was dangerous, and the wheels were falling off of it. One time, the lawnmower blade came off while I was mowing, and it flew about 50 yards and stuck into a tree. Right? So that's, that's my job is to mow the grass. Well, one day the the mower completely dies, and I'm a little panicked about it because you see in the ho- the dysfunctional home I grew up in, this is an anxiety-provoking event because we don't have money for a lawnmower. And my father's a raging alcoholic and used to beat everybody all the time Everything went every time something went wrong. So I have to have that conversation with Dad tonight, and it's not going to be fun. So Dad comes home, and I muster up the courage to say, Dad, the lawnmower's broke. He said, fix it. I said, it, it, it's broke this time. And he says, well, that's really interesting. He says, because today my boss, who owns an apartment complex, told me that he needs someone to mow his grass. And I told him you could go over and mow his grass. And I said, well, Dad, I I don't have a lawnmower. He says, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go buy you a new lawnmower. And then you're going to mow his grass. And then you're going to give me the money that he gives you until you pay off the lawnmower. And then you can have a lawnmower to mow grass. So we went down to Kmart, and we bought a lawnmower, and it was $120. And I remember thinking, I'm in debt $120, and I'm a 12-year-old boy, and that was a lot of money to me. And so this uh, this guy paid me $15 a week. I went over on Wednesdays. It was about a mile from my house. I had to walk down the highway to get there with my lawnmower and a gas can. And I went over on Wednesdays, and I mowed the grass. It took about three hours to mow this grass. And, and the property manager wrote me out a check for $15 a week. So you know what I did for the first eight weeks with that money, right? Do you know what it's like to be a 12-year-old little boy out working in the heat in the summer of Louisville, Kentucky, when it's 100 degrees, mowing grass for three hours, week after week after week, and not get to keep a dime? It was a little discouraging. But, you know, I had to pay my dad back the 120 bucks, so that's like the first eight weeks or whatever it was. So I got dad paid off. You know what I did with my paycheck the next week? I grew up Seventh-day Adventist with a raging alcoholic of a father, but a mother that loved the Lord and a church that taught the importance of stewardship. You know what I did with my paycheck the next week? It went the tithe plate. And I'm going to be honest with you, Elder, I wasn't real excited about it. I, I, you know, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. I couldn't quite get there. I, I was also hoping the Lord loved an obligatory giver because I knew that's kind of what I was. All right? But I wanted to be faithful to the Lord. And so there's another week of sweating and feeling a little resentful. You know, it's, it's just things aren't working out real good. And the next Wednesday, I got out my little lawnmower, I filled up my thing with gas, and I'm walking to, walking to my place to, to go mow grass, the apartments. And as I'm walking my, my lawnmower down the highway, the guy from the bait store comes out. And he says, hey, you, little boy, come over here. He says, I like you. He says, every Wednesday, I see you being faithful. I see you walking back and forth. And you go somewhere and mow grass, don't you? I, I, well, I, I mow the grass down the street at the apartment complex. He says, you walk all the way down there? I said, well, I'm 12 years old. I don't have a car. So, yeah, I walk all the way down there. He says, well, I like you. He says, you're a good worker. He says, you're going to start to mow the grass here at my bait shop. And I'm going to pay you $10 a week. And my thought was, hey, you know, this pay and tie thing works out pretty good for me. <laughs> right. It was the week after. And so now I, I, I mow grass at the bait shop on Tuesday, and I mow grass at the apartment complex on Wednesday. The next week, I'm walking to mow grass at the apartment complex. And across the highway, the man of the insurance company comes out. He says, hey, come here, little boy. I like you. And I'm like, oh, I know where this is going. I'm liking <laughs> these conversations. He says, you know, you're very faithful. You come down here every Wednesday, I said, and Tuesday, to mow grass. And he says, you're going to mow the grass at my insurance place here, Rudy's. Rudy Shinoft was his name, um, State Farm Insurance. He says, you're going to mow grass here, and I'm going to pay you $10 a week. So now I'm making 35 bucks a week. I have to tell you, amongst all my friends in the neighborhood, I was the poorest kid in the neighborhood. And I'm making 35 bucks a week. And I'm going, you know, this tie thing is working out really good for me. The next week, I'm on my way to mow grass. And back across the highway... There was a Gus's Beer Depot, and the lady that ran Gus's Beer Depot came out, and she said, hey, little boy, I like you. And my first thought was, I'm going to have to stop paying tithe because I can't handle all these blessings because I work all the time. I'm 12 years old, and I have to work every day after school. And she says, I said, let me guess. You want me to mow your grass? She says, nope, I want you to come sweep the parking lot. She says, I got a big parking lot. I got a three-foot broom. She says, I hate sweeping it. You're going to come sweep my parking lot every week. And so on, on Mondays, I mowed my own family's grass. On Tuesday, I mowed the bait shop. On Wednesday, I mowed the apartment complex. On Thursday, I mowed the insurance company. On Friday, I went and I swept the parking lot, so the parking lot was clean, clean for the weekend. I'm making 38 bucks a week. You know what my friends in the neighborhood called me? I was the poorest kid in the neighborhood. You know what they started to call me? They started to call me the Bank of Bob. <laughs> Whenever they needed money, they came to Bob. So that's a story of a 12-year-old little boy. So what? God can do the little things for a 12-year-old little boy, but does that matter when you become an adult? Fast forward a few years. I've got a wife and three kids. I'm on a pastor's salary. Neither one of us came from money or came from families that could support us. So we're we're not those people that, like, you ring mom and say, I'm having trouble with rent this month. We didn't come from those families. And so um, my wife's a weekend night nurse, and we chose for her to do that so we could raise our own children and not have to farm out child care. But we got three little kids at home. We got three in diapers at one time. The time finally came where we needed a minivan, and I went and found a minivan. It had 20,000 miles on it. It was in 1992, and I bought a 1990 Dodge Caravan. So proud of that 20,000-mile Dodge Caravan. It was white, had gray fabric interior, and I thought we were the coolest thing in the world. 1992, driving a Dodge Caravan. Now, let me tell you something about the 1990 Dodge Caravans. They had a, man, they had a malfunction. They had a, a design flaw in the transmission. And these caravans, the, the transmission always, 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 always went out at 90,000 miles. And when you hung around other caravan people, one of the common things you'd say was, well, when did you do the transmission? Because it's going out. They always go out. I sold that Dodge Caravan about, I don't know, eight or nine years later, I had 260,000 miles on it. I never did the transmission. It was one of the ways that God taught me again, that how he brings blessings into your life, that maybe he protects you from spending money, which means that you actually have more money. You see, the principle is 90% goes further than 100. God is faithful. Just like the text said this morning, I'm not preaching yet now. Don't start my clock yet, Elder. Don't start my clock, okay? God is faithful and he will keep his promises. I love thy law. I love your word. That's the text that we read this morning, that God is faithful. I'm experiencing this now as a young person. Okay, so God can handle the, 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 the silliness of a lawnmower and a 12-year-old little boy. God can handle a, a poor family that takes care of a transmission on a car. But can God really handle the big stuff in your life? Let me tell you this. It's my third and final story. There's a family that lives out in California. And their church went through a stewardship campaign. And they wanted to build a new church. But they didn't have the money. And this family, they're sitting on some money. All right? They are just about to retire. And they have been saving their nest egg for their whole lives. And they have one dream. And their dream is we want to build a great big house in the mountains that is big enough for all of our kids and grandkids to come and have vacations at our house. We're going to have Christmas at our house. We're going to be the grandma and grandpa hub. And it's going to be wonderful in our house that's their dream. And then the church does the stewardship campaign and they're like, uh they've got a million bucks, a million bucks set aside for their retirement dream home in the mountains. Church does the stewardship campaign and the stewardship consultant who is a very dear friend of mine and he's the one that tells me the story. He went to visit with them in their home. And they just got acquainted. And he said, you know, I'm doing visits with different people in the church and different church leaders. And I'm making personal invitations for people to support the campaign. And they said, well, Pastor, I'll be honest. We've got some money, but we're not going to do that. You see, we've got this dream. And they told him the dream. And he said, that's a great dream. He says, and I'm not here to twist your arm. God doesn't treat us that way, and I'm not going to treat you that way either. He said, but just let me ask you this. What do you think that God's treatments?" And this is what the lady said. She said, God's dream is that we could build a great big house where all of God's children could come and worship in his house. That's God's dream. He says, okay. And that was the end of their visit. And the next Sabbath, they gave their million bucks to build the new church. Now the realtor calls them a couple weeks later and says, guess what? I found your house, the house that you've been, you told me that you wanted the house and the big house and where you could, all your kids and grandkids could come. She said, I found your house. And they said, "Um, we're so sorry. We should have let you know. We've had a change in life circumstance and we're going to be staying where we are. And they told her the story of what God had done and how they were at peace with the decision and they were at peace with what God had led them to do. And the realtor says, I think you should come look at the house. Because with what the market's doing right now, I think I can sell your current house, and I think I can put you into your dream house. And they thought, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that we would commit ourselves to God in that way, and God would still give us our dream? And so they went and looked at the house. They loved it, they put their house on the market. They sold their house, and they made enough money to go buy the dream house. So now they're living in the dream house. So God has used them to bring a million dollars into the campaign and still giving them their dream. Isn't that a great story? That's not the end of the story. That's not even the good part. That's just the introduction. Watch what God does next. They're living in their house, and one day a strange man comes and knocks on the door. And he was very blunt. He was very abrupt with them. He says, Hi, my name's so-and-so, and... I've come to buy your house. And they were like, oh, you're not going to buy this house. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm pretty serious. I'm a pretty serious buyer. I want to buy your house. And they said, sir, come on in here and sit on a couch. We want to tell you a story about this house because this is God's house and God gave us this house. And God gave us this house for a very specific reason and we can't sell our house. And they brought him in. They told the story. They used it as an opportunity to share with him about God's faithfulness and about how when we're faithful to God, God gives us the desires of our heart, the Bible teaches us. And they told him this story and they got done. He said, That's a great story. He said, Thank you for sharing that story with me. He says, By the way, I'm, I'm still buying your house. And they were like, Sir, I don't think you heard us. This is God's house and we're not selling the house. God gave us this house. And he says, Well, listen, I'm a developer. And I'm going to put a ski resort on this mountain. And I have bought every single piece of property that I need. And you're the very last one. He said, so it doesn't matter how much it is. I'm going to buy your house. So he said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave you a blank check. And he said, you put any number you want on the check and the check will clear. And you just take your time and think that through. And he wrote him a check and he left. So they called their realtor and they said, if we were to move into our other next level second dream house, how much would that cost? And the realtor said, well, I know where the house is. We have the house. She said, the house is this much. So this is what they did. They put that number on the check, but then they added a million dollars. And the check cleared, and they bought the new house. And what do you think they did with the million dollars? Back to the stewardship campaign. So here's the big picture on this story. God used this family to bring two million dollars into the church building campaign. And he still gave them the desires of their heart. And he still fulfilled their dream. He took absolutely nothing away from them. In fact, this is not a subtraction thing. This is an addition thing. Because God grows their heart. He grows their capacity for faithfulness. And he grows them in their relationship, and their trust relationship with him. And there's something just incredible, incredible that takes place in their lives. And some of you are looking at me saying, why is he talking about that? He's a new president. He's in there talking about money. Listen to me, folks. I'm not talking about money. That's not what this story is about. This story is about God's faithfulness to us. God does not need your money. And by the way, the Ohio Conference does not need your money. And I don't say that because our coffers are full. That's not my point. Don't misunderstand. Our Heavenly Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But you need to be faithful to the Lord because of what it does for you. You see, as a pastor, and with a pastor's heart, my care and concern is for you and your family, it's for your welfare. It's for your relationship with Christ and for your ability to trust him and to taste and see that the Lord our God is good. You need to be faithful because of what it does in your heart and because of what it does in your life. And, Elder, I have no idea why I'm talking about that this morning. But God laid it on my heart right there. And I was like, Lord, come on. I'm a new president. I'm not going to talk to these people about that. He said, Bob, it's not about money. It's not about money. And you do what you're told. I said, yes, sir. So that's that. All right. You can start my clock now. Is that all right? I've learned that. You know, when you go somewhere and you say you got thirty minutes to preach, I say that's fine, but I'll tell you when to start the clock, all right? <laughs> and I start the clock about thirty minutes before I get done preaching. That's how that goes. <laughs> Another quick story for you. Starting my sermon now. Uh, the personal story. My wife and I, for a number of years, we enjoyed uh, being motorcycle enthusiasts. We had a motorcycle. And we would, uh, Thursday night was date night for us. And usually on Thursday night, we would hop on the bike, weather permitting, and we would go somewhere for a little ride, maybe go somewhere for dinner maybe go see some friends. And it was just a wonderful way to sort of wrap up the work week and start sliding into the weekend. There was a particular Thursday night where we had been on our motorcycle ride. And on the way home that evening, I, um, I said, we need to stop by Rick and Sherry's house. They were some of our church members. I had something to drop off or pick up or whatever it was. We stopped by Richard sherrys house. We had a nice visit. We probably stayed too long because we were dear friends and we love each other. And We left out of there quite late. It's quite dark outside. There's not a car on the road. They live out in the country. And we're on our way home. And being a red-blooded American male with probably a little bit too much testosterone, I might have been going a little bit too fast. Just maybe a little bit, right? And I'm on this old motorcycle, um, an old Yamaha Venture. Let me tell you about this motorcycle. When you rolled on the throttle really hard, you would have to check the rearview mirror to see if you'd lost anything important. Because there were usually nuts and bolts and motorcycle parts bouncing down the road behind you. It was kind of an old motorcycle, right? I told you I was a poor pastor. And so we were on our way home. I was probably going a little too fast. And I came down into a curve. I'm by myself on the road. My wife's on the back. There's no cars around. And we're out in the country. There is a road and there's two ditches. There's two barbed wire fences, and there's cow pastures on each side. And I laid down into this curve. I rolled on the throttle. Everything is fine. As I'm headed through that curve, I'm right in the apex of the curve, when suddenly I blow a fuse. What fuse do you think that would be? The fuse that runs the headlight. And just like that, I am in pitch black darkness. I can't see a thing. I'm in a curve. I'm on a 700-pound motorcycle, and I've got my dear wife on the back. we got three kids at home. And I have this moment of just stark raving terror, stark raving terror. And you would think, well, just roll off the throttle, right? Well, when you're, when you're motorcycling, when you roll off the throttle, the bike automatically stands up and it begins to straighten out. In other words, you lose the curve. You lose the ability to stay in a curve. But if you're going to wreck, you probably would do better to wreck at a low speed instead of a high speed. And so I have this decision to make of should I try to shut it down as quickly as possible, Or should I think that I can guess the trajectory of the curve and when the curve ends and when to straighten out the bike and try to shut it down on the other side? And I am in this moment of stark, raving panic. And I make the decision to try to finish the curve and take a guess as to when the curve ends and then shut it down as quickly as possible. And as I am rolling through that curve, something happens. About a half mile out in front of me, a car pops up over the hill with his two headlights, which gives me a beacon, and it gives me a point. And it allows me to accurately guesstimate the rest of the curve till I can get the bike shut down. And so using his lights, I got through the curve. I rolled off the throttle. There was a little side turnout there. I pulled into the side turnout hit the kill switch, kickstand, set the bike down. And I went, and my wife says, were we okay back there? I said, sure, honey, it happens all the time. No trouble, no trouble, I got it. She says, you are lying. I can hear it in your voice. It's another last time she ever got on that bike. She made me get a new motorcycle after that. And it just goes to illustrate this point. Then in the physical world, not having light is a big deal. If you don't have light, you can get yourself in trouble. You can lose your bearings. You can forget where you are. And you can be confused about where it is that you're supposed to go. In our text this morning that Christian read for us, it said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and it is a light unto my path. And today what I want us to do in the time that we have together is I want us to examine that text. And I want us to examine the Bible's claim. Because in that text, what the Bible is saying is it's saying that it has authority in the life of the Christian. And today by looking at Psalm 119, we're going to discover three life applications that teach us how it is that the Christian is to relate to God's word as the lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. How is it that this Bible is authoritative in my life? And why is it that I should allow the scripture to be an authoritative light in my heart and in my life? Now, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible. It explains how joy and happiness come to the person who accepts the law of the Lord as their counsel and as their guide. The psalm is an acrostic consisting of 22 sections, each section having eight verses, and they represent the 22 letters of an alphabet. That's what an acrostic is. So in the, in the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, you have Aleph, Beth, Gemel, dalet, You have the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And in the Hebrew, in the first section, the Aleph section, all of the, those verses begin with the letter Aleph. So it's kind of this Hebrew poetry. It's kind of this Hebrew alliteration. And what this means is that when you translate the psalm out of its original language, you lose a lot. You know, you don't translate poetry from another language, right? Why don't you do that? Because it's not poetry anymore, right? Poetry is language specific to its language of origin. And that's the way Psalm 119 is. It's an acrostic. It's, it's Hebrew poetry. It was written in that way with a certain poetic flair and style as it follows, as it mimics the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Yet in spite of the limitations of translation, the message of Psalm 119 is still very clear. The thesis statement for this chapter, thank you so much, thank you. The thesis statement for this chapter is found in the first verse of, of, the, of the text. It says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. And this lays the foundation. This lays the foundation for the entire chapter. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses is built on this foundation. The first eight verses, the left section we find seven words that describe this law that is referred to in verse 1. The words are testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, law, and judgment. These seven words, all of which refer to the same law, they refer to different aspects of the divine revelation or law. These variations, they're designed to add beauty and depth to the psalm, as well as to avoid the monotonous repetition of the same word over and over. Because the psalmist has some things that he wants to teach us about the law of God. And so he reaches out for all of these synonyms in his poetic expression as he talks about the beauty of the law of God. I want to read for you the first two, se- the first two sections, right? Some of you are saying, is he going to read all 176 verses? Nope, we don't have time for that today. I'm going to read just the first two sections, the Aleph section and the Beth section. That's the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, those first two sections. And it gives us kind of a sampling of Psalm 119. Here's the way it reads Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Just stop and let that percolate through your heart a little bit. I want to be that guy. I want to position myself for that blessing. I want to walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments." I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn of your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I mean, who cares that we lose the poetry when we translate it? It's beautiful, amen? It's fantastic. It is an incredible passage of Scripture. I, I love the verses that Christian read for us this morning, beginning with verse, I think it was 96. This is incredible, what we learn when we work our way through this passage, even when it's translated from its original language. And the, and the most well-known verse in the chapter Of all 176 verses, the most well-known verse is verse 105 that Christian read for us. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light of, of my path. You see, God's word is designed to be a beacon for us. It's designed to illuminate God's plan for our lives and the direction that God would have us to go. It's designed to keep us from stepping to the left or to the right of God's will Because on both sides, there is a pitfall that Satan wants us to get mired in. God's word is designed to help us order our steps and understand his activity in the world and his activity in our own lives. And and that just fills my heart with, with courage. That encourages me when I realize that. Because God sees the future. God, God God, is already in the future. When, when, the, when he says, I am the I am, what he is saying is, I am in the past, I am in the present, and I am already in the future. So if there is one who sees the future, who has my best interest at heart, who comes and puts his arm around me and says, Bob, just let me guide you, and I will guide you to a joyful and successful future. I wish I had a financial planner that was in the future, that understood the future. I wish I had a realtor who was in the future and understood the future. I wish that I had someone who could see if there was going to be an accident or a place where I or my family member was going to be harmed, and they could keep us from that. That's what God does. And his word is the lamp that he has given us that is a light unto my path, that is a light unto my feet. So, I want us to take a look at this, and we're looking for three applications today. We're looking for three life applications of how is it that the Bible is a lamp unto my feet? Here's the first life application the Bible teaches that it's authoritative. That's life application number one. This is authoritative. This is not just poetry from antiquity, this is not just the writings of a historian. This is not just someone's opinion or reflection on the past. This is not just someone's idea about God. That's not what this is. There are a lot of writings that do that, and they are limited to that, but that's not what this is. This is God's word. This is authoritative. And that guides me in my understanding of this word. I approach every other piece of literature differently Then I approach this. There's a way that I approach history. There's a way that I approach news. There's a way that I approach politics. There's a way that I approach economy. There's a way that I approach finance. There's a way that I approach uh, poetry. There's a way that I approach prose. That's different than how I approach this because this is authoritative. That's what it says about itself. It says that it's authoritative. You see, the Bible writers testify that their messages came directly from God, Stop and let that settle in on your heart for a minute. This stuff in this book, this 1538 pages, it's not man's design idea or opinion. It came directly from God. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, they they repeatedly reclaimed that the word of the Lord came to me. And this is what he says. As his messengers they were commanded to speak in his name by saying Thus says the Lord. And his word constitute their divine credentials and authority. Matthew begins the New Testament by alluding to the authority behind the Old Testament. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. You see, this is different than anything else that we read. Matthew sees the Lord as the direct agency, the author, the authority for whom the prophet speaks. In second in uh, in second Peter 3, the apostle classifies the writings of Paul as scripture and therefore as authoritative. Galatians 1:12, Paul says that he did not receive his message from man nor was he taught it, but it, it came as a divine revelation from Christ. Understanding the Bible as authoritative is what's known in theological circles as the high view of Scripture. It means that this is authoritative. It's not just opinion. It's not just a smorgasbord that I can choose the pieces that I like and that I don't like. Do you know what the Seventh-day Adventist Church's position is regarding Scripture? We are a movement that believes in the authority of Scripture. Therefore, we hold to this theological motif of what we call the high view of Scripture meaning that the scripture is authoritative in our lives. This is important to who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. You see, if we perceive the Bible as simply being a collection of human testimonies or if the authority that we grant it in some way depends on how it speaks to me or how it moves me, how it touches my feelings or my emotions, then we neuter the Bible's authority in our lives. But when we understand that God is God's voice is the voice that's speaking through the writers, then the scriptures become the absolute authority in matters of doctrine, in matters of belief. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Timothy 3:16, when he says that all of scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it is therefore profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. I forgot my tape measure. Where's Paul, our deacon? Is there a tape measure in the house close by? It's all right. Don't worry about it. We're we're okay. I forgot my tape measure. I was going to do an illustration. Here's my illustration. And and I'll just do it a little quicker because I'm I'm keeping an eye on the clock. I was going to come down on the floor here, and I was going to ask for three volunteers, three men who are good at working with their hands, good, strong, blue-collar types. And you call out three people. It would be Paul, and it would be somebody over here, and somebody over here. And then I would say, we're going to have a competition, and I want you to guess how far it is from that pew to that pew, the middle aisle there. How, many, how far is it in inches? And the three men would call out three different numbers as they would guess how far this is. And then I would say, how many of you like the first guy? How many like the second guy? How many think the third guy is correct? And then I would suggest that we have a business meeting later to discuss this and debate the issue. And I would suggest that we, they each submit their, their builder resumes, their blue-collar resumes, and that they each bring us work that they have built with their hands so that we could get an idea who it is that's likely correct. And we, would, we could have a debate about who's correct, who's going to win this competition, and guess how many inches are there. And then I was going to pull out a measuring tape, and I was going to measure it, and say, this is authoritative, We don't have to have a business meeting. We don't need to have a debate. We don't need to see their resumes. We don't need to have an argument. This right here settles the matter for us because it's authoritative. Folks, that's the way the Bible is. When we say life application number one, that the Bible has authority in our lives, that we hold to a high view of scripture, what we're saying is that the Bible is the authority in matters of teaching and correction and doctrine and instruction. That's life application number one. Now, from this high view of Scripture, a second life application emerges. It teaches then, if the Bible is authoritative, it teaches that the Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa. Now, if you have any idea what is going on in our culture right now, you understand that this is a countercultural message. This is not what's being taught on public college campuses. This is not what young people think. This is not what you get when you look at pop culture or, or the news or secular commentators. This flies in the face of what we know of as moral relativism, which teaches that there's no absolute truth. Truth is whatever I want it to be. Truth is whatever is true to me. I get to choose truth. I get to kind of be the editor editor of truth, and I get to, like, reach out to the smorgasbord and construct my own truth. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the Bible is authoritative because it's God's word. So in other words, there is an absolute truth, and I don't get to decide what that is. So, this is countercultural stuff. Life application number one, the Bible is authoritative. And if that's true, then life application number two emerges that the Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa. So, you know how a template works, right? If you're building something, say this is the template, you take all the pieces of something else and you lay it on the template, and the template gives guidance to how this second piece gets built. Now, if I build the second piece and I lay it on the template and it doesn't quite match up, I don't change the template. I change the piece that I'm building. This is the Bible, and this is my life. Elder, every time I lay my life on the Bible, I see areas where there need to be adjustments. I see areas where things need to happen. Right? This never fails. It never fails. On the Sabbath morning that I get in a fight with my wife, I always wind up preaching on love and family and all that stuff. You see, I take the template of my life and I lay it on the scripture and I see an incongruency there. And it's not the scripture that changes to fit Bob. It's Bob that changes to fit scripture because life application number two is the Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa. And so I have to go back to my wife. I, well, we have to talk about that thing this morning. She goes, well, why? Because you don't want to be a hypocrite when you stand up in the pulpit? I say, uh-huh, exactly. That's right. You got it. You got it. I will repent in sackcloth and ashes, right? The Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa. So the heed that we take, the counsel that we accept, the template that we follow is not mine, but it's it's his. I don't take heed, remember? I think it was verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So the heed that we take is not mine because I'm not the authority. The Bible is the authority. This means that I allow the scriptures to inform me and not vice versa. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 say it this way. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be found a liar. You see, the trend in our culture today is sort of this morality by smorgasbord. It's a morality that is supposed to submit to my opinions, my comfort level, and the limitations of my fallen and finite human nature. That's not, I don't have editorial privileges over truth. I saw a bumper sticker one time that really made my heart hurt. The bumper sticker said, Born okay the first time. Some of you groaned. It made your heart hurt, didn't it? Didn't your heart crinkle up a little bit? What's the bumper sticker saying? It is a direct attack on the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, You must be born again. You see, the gospel teaches that you're not really okay. You were born as a sinful human being with a sinful human nature, you were born disconnected from God, and you need God's help. God is here on a rescue mission through his son, Jesus Christ. And through accepting Jesus and having him deal with our sinful past, that's how we get reconnected to God. So you're not really okay. By the way, folks, I tell you, our culture is headed to some trouble. It's headed into some trouble. Because on a college campus right now, the term is microaggression. Whenever you tell someone they're not okay... That is understood on secular college campuses right now to be a microaggression. And you're not allowed to utter words of microaggression because it's called hate speech. So for the Bible to say you're not okay, you're a sinner in need of saving, and God comes to help us with that, in the current context of our culture, that is termed microaggression and hate speech. We are headed toward a collision in our culture. This stuff that you're hearing this morning, this is countercultural, Right? This is end-time collision stuff that we're talking about this morning. Born okay the first time. No, Jesus says that you're not. But the inventor of that bumper sticker basically says, uh, when it comes to the matters of eternity in the spiritual world, I know more than you do. And God, you're actually wrong on this one the person is attempting to debate God as if they can debate God and actually win that argument. It is is an example of a human being over-exaggerating the importance of their own opinion as if to suggest that they have the spiritual and intellectual capacity to disagree with God and actually win that argument. This is why Christianity is not really in vogue in our culture anymore. Oh, we're getting down to the heart of the matter. Listen to this next paragraph. God's word is not subject to the limits of your opinion, your experience, your politics, your education, or your comfort level. This thing of, well, actually, I'm not comfortable with that. It doesn't matter. I don't get to editorialize truth based on what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not comfortable with. Why? Because the Bible is authoritative, number one, and number two, the Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa. You see, the fact that you don't believe something has absolutely no impact on whether it's true. I can loudly and confidently and with deep conviction claim that I do not believe in gravity. And the law of gravity does not therefore adjust itself to fit my belief. And if I announce that to you and then step off of this stage, gravity does not care. You see, that's because gravity is and gravity exists outside of me. And I do not have editorial privileges over gravity. And gravity does not adjust itself. Gravity does not bow down to me or submit to me because of my convictions or my comfort level. Did you hear this story about these two guys that were flying in a small plane? And suddenly the motor coughs and sputters and the single little propeller spins to a stop. And the pilot is in a panic. And then he stops and he looks at his passenger. And he says, man, I don't know how to tell you this. We just ran out of fuel. And his passenger says, oh, great, so now we're stuck up here. You see, just because you don't understand how something works doesn't mean that it doesn't work that way. The Bible is not subject to me. I'm subject to the Bible. Paul reminds us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Paul is being very polite to us in this text when he tells us this. But in essence, this is what he's saying. He's saying we are small, finite, physical beings who are doing battle in a spiritual world against beings that are far superior in strength and intellect and insight than we are. And it is not wise to walk into that battle thinking that you get to determine the rules of engagement. It's a little like sending a troop of medieval archers Up against a battalion of modern day tanks. It's not a real good outcome. But we don't need to be discouraged about that, right? I I don't don't mean to be saying like you should just be scared to death because the devil's really big and powerful and he's out to get you. That's not the point. God God has given us his word, right? This, This is where it gets incredible. He's given us his word to help us in that conflict. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Thy word is truth. He he's evens the playing field by teaching us how to stay close to Him and honor Him, by allowing His Holy Spirit to live inside of us. His Word gives us needed direction. It strengthens our vision so that we can see, so that we can understand spiritual realities. It opens our minds so that we can understand the realities of the spiritual world and our place in it and how to relate to it. Life application number two, the Bible is not a template for my life, but vice versa. And in order for the Bible to serve as a template for my life, I have to know what it says. I have to spend time with it on a daily basis. I have a long day today, all right? I've got two more appointments. My last appointment will end quite late tonight. Um, I got to bed late. I was up early. I still spent my time. I'm 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 in 1 Samuel. I wrapped up 1 Samuel today. I still did my 10 chapters because I need that. Right? Not because I have a sermon to preach. You know, I'm not preaching on for Samuel today. This is not sermon prep time. This is my time to get up and say, Bob, you're a mess, and you need to lay your life on the template of Scripture, that authoritative Scripture. You need to die today. You need to submit to the work of sanctification in the Holy Spirit today. You need to walk in the Spirit today. That's the kind of day that I want to have today. This leads us to our third life application. Our third life application is that my interpretation of the Bible must reflect the author's original intent. So if the Bible is authoritative and if the Bible serves as the template for scripture, then when I go to the Bible, my understanding of the Bible, my interpretation of the Bible, must number 3, it must reflect the author's original intent. How many times have you had this experience? where you're at a Bible study and the group is working through a passage and suddenly someone speaks up and says, well, let me tell you what it means to me. And then they say something that is really, really far away from what the passage actually says. And you want to be polite when you're in that, because it's a social setting, right? You're listening to this and you're like, okay, so I'm reading the text and the text says this, but you're saying this and this is your interpretation of the text. But that's not, that's not what the text says. Do you see what's happening there? It's more relativism at work. We've forgotten life application number one. The Bible is authoritative. We've forgotten life application number two. The Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa, meaning I don't have editorial privileges over the Bible. So what that means is that my interpretation of the Bible must reflect the author's original intent. First, uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 20, Paul says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy did not come by the will of man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That is such an important text. I could have used that text on life application number one, that the Bible's authoritative, right? Prophecy did not come by the thoughts of a man, but by holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit? That's life application number one. It's authoritative. It's life application number two. It's a template. It's also life application number three. We get all three life applications right here in this single verse. Right? That my interpretation of the Bible then must reflect the author's original intent. Oh yeah, here's a fun, here's a fun illustration. I want you to pretend that I'm um I'm I'm not the president. I'm I'm a, I'm a pastor. And I pastor a church somewhere here in Ohio. And um, I come into church on, on Monday morning. And one of my jobs on Monday morning is to get the church mail. out of the church mailbox. And, and I get a piece of mail from the mailbox. And it says, oh, Ohio Conference President. And I'm like, oh, my president sent me a letter. Isn't that great? And so I go in and I sit down at the church office and I, re- I read a letter from the president. Right, It's a print-in story. And I open the letter from the president see what my president has written me a letter to say. And here's what the letter says. It says something like, um, Dear Pastor Bob Cundiff, we're hearing bad things at the office. And we're hearing that that you're not really doing your job. You're not visiting people. You're not showing up to meetings. We're hearing that when you stand up to preach, you just read an article out of some magazine somewhere. And so we need to speak with you about your future in the ministry. And so I want you in my office next Monday morning at 8 o'clock. And failure to appear at that time will result in your immediate termination. It's just a pretend letter. Don't be too upset, right? But let's let's pretend that I got this letter. That's a, that's a pretty serious letter, right? And so I open the letter and I read the letter and I say, now let me tell you what it means to me. Let me interpret the letter for you. I interpret this letter to mean... I don't care what it says. I'm tell you what it means. It means to me, it means that the office is so delighted with my work that they have nominated me for the Pastor of the Year Award. And that they're, they're, they're so happy with my performance as a pastor that they're sending me on an all-expense-paid trip to Hawaii and that I should leave next Monday. This is what it means to me. All right. Is the illustration clear? That my, my, my interpretation of the text must reflect the author's original intent. The story was told of a telephone operator who used to work downtown. And every day at exactly 11.58 a.m., the phone would ring. And it was always the same guy, and he would always ask the same question. He would say, ma'am, can you tell me exactly to the minute what time it is, please? And she would say, why, yes, I can. It's exactly 11.58 a.m. He would say, thank you, and he'd hang up. And one day, right on time, 11.58 a.m., the phone rings, and he says, ma'am, can you tell me exactly to the minute what time it is, please? And she says, why, yes, I can. But before I do that, I want to ask you a question. She says, why is it that you call me every single day at exactly the same time, and you ask me to tell you exactly what time it is to the minute, what time it is? And he said, well, that's easy. He said, I work for the, I work for the city, and I'm the, I'm the guy that takes care of the bell tower downtown, right? Remember the old town where there was a bell tower in the middle of the city and there's a clock on it? And he said, it's my job every day at exactly 12 o'clock, it's my job to ring, the town for our, to ring the bell for our town. He says, and I want to be sure that I get it right. So every day I call you and I ask you to tell me exactly what time it is. And she says, well, that's funny. Because every day at noon when you ring the bell... We set the clock here in the office. <laughs> you see, if I'm looking to you for moral guidance and you're looking to me for moral guidance, and my experience is the authority and your experience is the authority, and while well, you seem really convicted, so maybe that's true, so maybe I had to do that, guess what? We're going to flounder morally. We're going to flounder. Because we're infected with the sinful human nature. The Bible is authoritative, is the template. And my relationship to Scripture, my interpretation of Scripture, must reflect the the author's original intent. This is the third life application that we draw from the Scriptures today. You see, when we accept the Bible as the authoritative Word of God, we position ourselves for spiritual safety and joy and clarity regarding God's plan for our lives. But when we wander outside of that safety zone, we give Satan a special foothold in our lives. And we place ourselves and our families and our churches at an unnecessary risk of spiritual malaise and confusion and heartache. So the first life application was the Bible is authoritative. The second life application, the Bible is a template for my life and not vice versa. The third life application, my interpretation of Scripture must reflect the... The author's original intent. Folks, when we do that, then thy word is a lamp unto my feet and it is a light unto my path. Now we know how to do it. Now when we read Psalm 119 and we read all those beautiful words that promise blessing and safety and security and joy, we position ourselves so that anger and anxiety and fear and frustration goes down And security and joy, strong relationships, they go up. And God's word can have its desired effect in our lives. You know what I wish? I wish there was a study. I wish there was a laboratory. I wish there was a group of people who would take that seriously. And who would live like thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And that over the period of years, we could see what happens. Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't that be neat? How about if there was a group of people that were isolated somewhere and they decided to do that for a period of decades, and then we could go back and study them as a case study and we could see whether the Bible's claims about itself were true? Wouldn't that be cool? This is my closing story. You know where I'm going with it? It has happened. That happened. Exactly what I just described It happened. I'm going to share with you the most incredible story now. This is an incredible story. It's my closing story. I'm quoting. It was 1945 when, as a war correspondent on Okinawa, interesting, an island, an isolated place, I first came upon Shimabuku, the strangest and most inspiring community I ever saw. Huddled beneath its banyan groves and twisted pine trees was this remote village of some 1,000 souls. They were in the advance, they were in the path of the American advance and so received a severe shelling. But when an advance patrol swept up to the village compound, the soldiers were stopped dead in their tracks. Barring their way were two little old men. They bowed low and began to speak. The, battle, excuse me, the battle-hardened sergeant, weary of tricks, held up his hand. He summoned an interpreter. The interpreter, after listening for a few minutes, shook his head. He said, I don't get it, sir. It seems that we are being welcomed as fellow Christians. This one says he's the mayor of the village. That other one, he's the schoolmaster. And that, that's a Bible the older one holds in his hands. Guided by the two old men, Mojun Nakamura, the mayor, and Shosia Kenya, the schoolmaster, we cautiously toured the compound. We'd seen other Okinawan villages uniformly down at the heels and despairing. By contrast, this one shone like a diamond in a dung heap. Everywhere, we were greeted by smiles and dignified bows. Proudly, the two old men showed us their spotless homes, their terraced fields, fertile and neat, their storehouses and granaries, their prized sugar mill. Gravely, the old men talked on, and the interpreter said, They have only met one American before, long ago. And because he was a Christian, they assume that we are too. Though they can't quite understand why we came in shelling. Piecemeal, the incredible story came out. 30 years before, here's our case study, this is fascinating, 30 years before, an American missionary on his way to Japan had paused at Shimabuku. He'd stayed only long enough to make a pair of converts, these same two men, teach them a couple of hymns, and leave them a Japanese translation of the Bible and exhort them to live by it. They had had no contact with any Christian since then. Yet during those 30 years, guided by the Bible, they had built a Christian community that truly honored God. How had it happened? Picking their way through the Bible, oh, this authoritative template that informed them. Picking their way through the Bible, the two converts had found not only an inspiring person upon whom to pattern a life, but also sound precepts on which to adopt a society. They'd adopted the Ten Commandments as Shimabuku's legal code, the Sermon on the Mount as their guide to social conduct. In Kina's school, the Bible was chief literature, and it was read daily by all students. Major passages were memorized. In Nakamura's village government, the precepts of the Bible were the law. Nurtured on this book, A whole generation of Shimabukuans had drawn from it their ideas of human dignity and the rights and the responsibilities of citizenship. And the result was plain to see. For years, Shimabuku had had no jail, no brothel, no drunkenness, no divorce, and there was a high level of health and happiness. The next day, the tide of battle swept us on, but a few days later, during a lull, I requisitioned a jeep and a Japanese-speaking driver, and I went back to Shimabuku. Over the winding roads outside the village, huge truck convoys passed, and endless lines of American troops moved dustily on. Behind them lumbered armored trucks, heavy artillery, and yet more troops. But inside, Shimabuku was an oasis of serenity. Once again, I strolled through the quiet village streets, soaking up Shimabuku's calm. There was the sound of singing. We followed it and came to Nakamura's house, where a curious religious service was underway. Having no knowledge of churchly forms or ritual, the Shimabukuans had developed their own. There was much Bible reading by Kina, repeated in sing-song fashion by the worshipers. Then came the hymn singing. The two hymns the missionary had taught them long ago, fairest Lord Jesus, and all hail the power of Jesus' name, had naturally suffered some changes, but were recognizable. Swept up in the spirit of all hail the power, we joined in. After many prayers voiced spontaneously by people in the crowd, there was a discussion of community problems. With each question, Cana quickly turned to some passage of the Bible to find the answer. The book's imitation leather cover was cracked and worn. Its pages were stained and dog-eared from 30 years of constant use. And Kena held it with the reverent care that one would use in handling the original Magna Carta. The service over, we waited as the crowd moved out. And my driver whispered hoarsely, So this is what comes out of only a Bible and a couple of old guys who wanted to live like Jesus. Then with a glance at a shell hole, he murmured, maybe we are using the wrong kinds of weapons. Time had dimmed the Kuan's memory of the missionary. Neither Kina nor Nakamura could recall his name. They did, however, remember his parting statement. As expressed by Nakamura, it was, study this book well. It will give you a strong faith the creator God and when your faith is strong everything is strong I told you that was my last story can I give you just one more just a little one another story comes to mind I believe it was 1911 could have been 1908 somewhere in there there was a general conference session for those of you that maybe don't know as much about the structure of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The general conference is is kind of like the the administrative office, the the administrative office that does global administration. It's kind of the the top end of the administrative structure. And once every 5 years they have delegates from the whole world that come together and we do business as a church. It's called the general conference session. There was a general conference session in 1908, 1911, somewhere in there. And it was generally understood that this would be Ellen White's last session. So it was a sad time. She preached multiple times throughout the session. And and there was just sort of this this feeling, this understanding that this this early church mother, one who was was foundational in the development of our movement, um, that this would be the last time that she would be with us. She was well advanced in years. I think she died in 1915. So she preaches, I think she preached eight times that week during the session. Her very last sermon, she stood up and she preached. Great sermon, whatever it was, great sermon. And she got done, and she closed her Bible, and she walked back to her chair. But then she stopped, and she turned around. She came back to the podium, and she stopped, and she opened her Bible. And she held it forth to the assembly. And she says, ladies and gentlemen, I commend to you the word of God. And then she took her seat. Her final moment of public counsel to the denomination was, don't forget this. This is the lamp unto our feet. It is the light unto our path. And all of these years later, it still is. Amen. It still defines us and it still guides us as a Seventh-day Adventist people. Amen. It is this word. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, what a wonderful, wonderful passage of scripture for us to go through together today. It may be that there are those of us in this room who have read that passage many, many times and never really grasped its full and deep import and the way that it applies to our hearts and lives. And God, today, my own heart is inspired by Psalm 119, 105. And I just want to make a public commitment to you today, Father, that once again, say that I accept your word as authoritative in my life. And I want it to be the guiding beacon. I want it to be the template of my life. And God, I just believe that there are others here in this congregation who would want to join me in that commitment. And God, we're, we're here in a time of prayer. Our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed. We're not looking around at each other. We're not playing spiritual king of the hill or This is not a time for any of us to stand up and say, look at me, look how spiritual I am. But God, I want to ask for a time of commitment for this congregation. I want to to extend an invitation to anyone here who would join me today and say, man, I want that. Maybe I haven't related to the Bible in the way that I should. I've kind of read it as history or as politics or poetry or opinion, commentary, but I understand that I want the Bible to be more than that. I want its mentoring, its discipling. I want it to be a beacon for me. I want it to have authority in my life. If you're here today and you want to make that commitment to me, then would you just raise your hand before the Lord today? You don't need to worry about who's on your right or your left or looking at you. This is just between you and God. We're making a commitment today. Thank you. You can put your hands down. We're making a commitment to the day, to the Lord and saying, we want your word to do its sanctifying, powerful work in each one of our lives. Father, this is our prayer. This is our commitment before you this Holy Sabbath day. And we bring this prayer and this commitment to you in the name of our lovely Jesus. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor Bob. It was beautiful. Amen? Amen. The scripture and it still is, right? Let's close with our closing song. Um, do I have it here? There is more about Jesus. Very fitting. Thank you. Um, the uh, scripture is found in two forty-five. So when you find it in your hymnal, shall we stand as we sing? Two forty-five. Our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the powerful messages that you've given us today, the beautiful spiritual life lessons. Let they seek deep into our heart. May us all remain faithful and true to you, Lord. Only Jesus, only Jesus is the only thing important, Lord. Help us become, change us, make us born again. Send your Spirit to circumcise our hearts, make us ready for when you come in the clouds, Lord. That you can take us home. We can all be one big happy family. In that big, beautiful house that you're making for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, our Lord and Savior. Amen.